Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer, and on this podcast, I have long, informal conversations with other folks in my field, broadly speaking. Um, we talk about their science, we talk about their pathways into science, we talk about their daily lives, we talk about personal things. Uh, whatever comes up, really, it's meant to be conversational, it's meant to be uh, more relaxed, and it's meant to be about um, sharing, I don't know, an actual conversation, like a long format conversation with somebody. Um, I'm recording this the night before it goes out. Um, I'm maybe a little more relaxed than I usually am, uh, so that might come across in the tone, but that's fine. That's okay, right? So um, I was delighted a few weeks ago to talk with Bianca Perrin. Uh, Dr. Perrin is a quaternary paleoecologist, so part of what that means is she thinks about Arctic and Antarctic change over time, specifically in the context of uh, how diatom populations change in glacial lakes, for example. Uh, so she has uh, rooting in climate change. There's a climate change element. There's a paleo climate element, an ecology element. So she's a thoroughly interdisciplinary scientist. Uh, we talked about diatoms, fossils, she reminded me about uh, what eutrophication is. We talked about reconstructing the Southern Ocean westerly winds using sediment car cores, sediment cars, sediment cores. Uh, we talked about the study she did uh, in uh, Lone Spruce Pond in Southwest Alaska that involved some interesting revelations about the nitrogen cycle. Well, they were revelations for me. I don't know if they were exactly for her field. They were publishable results and, and good, but I learned a lot is what I'm saying, is what I'm trying to say. She's worked extensively in Greenland, uh, extensively in the Arctic, uh, and it was a, a real pleasure to chat with her. I think I was a little bit all over the place, so I think I jumped around a little bit more uh, than I normally like to. Uh, we recorded after lunch, so uh, that was the first time I tried to record after lunch. I usually record in the morning, so I don't know if it was that deviation from the routine or whatever that made it a little bit different, but uh, I, th I thought it went great. I, th I really enjoyed the chat, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Just to orient you, we talked about the science more upfront the first, uh, I don't know, roughly hour or so, and then we transitioned into talking about more personal things. Uh, her pathway into science and her kind of how she handles uh, her work on a day to day, uh, in a day to day fashion. And uh, yeah, so that's the kind of rough structure of the next couple of hours. Um, we talked about she's involved with this organization, Students on Ice. It's a Canadian charitable organization uh, and it leads these expeditions. To the Arctic and Antarctic. It's about exposing international uh, high school and university students. Uh, it's about exposing them to uh, the nature directly and with the guidance of scientists who know about the regions that they're studying, who know about the polar regions, so that they can foster an understanding of uh, the actual environment, like different parts of Greenland, for example. And uh, we talk about some of those experiences and how she's um, a facilitator for that. And she's, we talk about this in the episode. She's a very easy person to talk to. She's a very uh, open and welcoming person. So I haven't been on these expeditions with her, but I could imagine 
them being very nice. So if you're a, if you're a student, um, you might look into students on ice a little bit and uh, see if maybe there's a pathway for getting involved with that organization, maybe maybe through Dr. Perrin or maybe through someone else. Uh, I don't know the details, but I'm very happy to um, you know get you in touch with her if that's something you want to learn more about. Or of course, you can just look it up yourself. Students on Ice, we talk about it a, a lot. She's also a painter. We talk about her artwork and uh, how that uh, that she has done that as a hobby, but has uh, occasionally had a, a gallery exhibit here and there. Uh, a, a, a show, an art show, as they call it. Um, she was also involved with the uh, relatively new uh, Al Gore documentary, An Inconvenient Sequel, and she provided some some guidance for that and uh, appeared in the film, I believe, in bits and pieces here and there. Um, as we talk about, uh, somehow I haven't seen that one, shockingly. Uh, I'll admit that to you right now. I'm not really, uh, I'm, I'm behind on my documentaries. I need to catch up, and uh, that is one of them. That I need to catch up on. Um, although, you know, I, I'm not sure, will there be new information for me in there? I'm not sure. Or will it be uh, just depressing? <laughs> I'm not sure. I haven't seen it, so I can't really speak to, you know, what kind of impact it might have on me. I should have warned you I was going to go on for a little bit and ramble a little bit. Maybe this is what happens when I record the intro the night before, uh, late in the evening. Yeah, I'm normally more on top of it than that. But, uh, well, Deadlines happen, and work happens, doesn't it? You just have to do what you can. So, uh, yeah, without me rambling on much further, let's just get into it. And uh, I hope you enjoy this chat with Bianca Perrin, quaternary paleoecologist, paleoclimatologist, and um, expedition leader, artist, and, and just an all-around really pleasant and uh, very sharp person to talk to. So, uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, oh, uh, other announcements. You can find her on Twitter, but she hasn't really, uh, she's kind of abandoned the Twitter profile, I think. So if you find her on Twitter, I don't know, uh, maybe don't hold your breath for a response. But uh, you can look her up on the British Antarctic Survey website um, to get her email and contact information there. Um, and we are at Climate SciPod, this podcast, at Climate SciPod. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter, so uh, feel free to follow those if you want updates or if you want to give us some feedback uh, for potential guests or things you would like to hear, uh, you know, things you like, things you don't like, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, yeah, okay, I think that's it. I can't think of anything else. We're still on a two-weekly schedule uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, it's possible I might end up needing to take a little break over the holidays. But uh, I will let you know if that appears to be the case. Uh, so th thanks to Dr. Perrin for sitting down with me and for uh, being so open and for sharing her time and her perspective. I really appreciated it. And uh, I hope that you enjoy it. Enjoy the chat as well. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're here. Yeah, it's nice to have the opportunity to like sit down and talk. Yeah, for... totally. Not just at lunch for fifteen minutes or. Yeah, because yeah, I realized I don't actually know that much about like the science stuff that you do, <laughs> even though we've talked at lunch, you know, a good number right. of times. Yeah. And here and there at, at pubs in Cambridge, and so 
I kind of, you know, just looking at your Bass profile page, and I found your Twitter page that you made ages ago and then abandoned. <laughs> it's there, though. Yeah, it's, it's not still... really the most um, convincing Twitter presence. It's still, uh, it's still there. Yeah, it's it, still there. You, you could, uh, you could revive it if you wanted. I, I probably should. Yeah, maybe. Although I'm still not totally sold. I think it can be helpful, but I, in terms of like communicating with other scientists and a bit with the public and a bit just kind of having that public presence, but um, there is a real black hole to it as well. And oh, there's, for sure. there's a real dark, you know, yeah. nasty and also you see side a lot to of it. People at meetings are tweeting as they're listening, and I think that they're not listening; they're just tweeting. So yeah, there's it, kind of a tendency to sort of skim the top of things and then mm-hmm. send it out. It's like reading an abstract and not really reading the paper. Right. I think, I guess, I've been that person sometimes, and I guess I'll say, not so much in my defense, but just like, <laughs> I think this is a good conversation, this is a good, like, yeah. thing. I've done that sometimes, and I've noticed that it it does, if the subject matter is, like, not mine directly, then doing the Twitter thing helps me stay a little more connected to it. It stops me from just totally uh, drifting off into a different direction and just daydreaming and, you know, and, and thinking about something else entirely. I at least then need to pay attention enough to the presentation to, like, is there something that I could extract, like some short statement I could pull out of this <laughs> or, <laughs> right. or not? Yeah. And uh, So it's like a mental exercise. I guess so. Or a meditative practice where you pull yourself back to the present. Uh, I guess, yeah, I guess it forces you to, right? And that's the yeah. point you're tweeting about stuff that's happening, you know, right. now. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, I've been on the other side of that, too, in terms of uh, I've been somebody who's followed a meeting on Twitter where mm. I can't make it. And, you know, if, if it's done well, then folks will just tweet with a hashtag, and you can click on the hashtag and see a list of you know, talk summaries or at least who's, who's doing what and who's there. And, you know, you're, you're right. You don't get very much detail. You don't really get a big sense of what's going on. But you can at least you can see the highlights, and you get some sense of, like, well, okay, here's what's happening today. Uh, is it of questionable, you know, scientific merit? Uh, maybe, but it, it, does, it can at least help you feel like... You're, you're, you've got an ear on it. You, you know who's talking and you know the big topics that are being... And it feels a little more connected than just like looking at the bunch of abstracts, for example. True, yeah. yeah. I was talking to a Nature Comms editor at Polar 2018 meeting, and he was lamenting the fact that there's so few meetings now where you can go and listen to people who are presenting work that's kind of in, in progress or not at a very polished form. And I think that in some ways... Twitter and social media have kind of made it that everybody needs to have something polished because if you, you know, present results and then somebody tweets them, then they're kind of official, mm-hmm. you know? So there's this, I don't know, it seems like maybe the, it's changed how, um, yeah, how polished people are. But also maybe it's a generational thing. I think that, like, the younger people are much more uh, media savvy and presentation savvy and TED mm-hmm. talky than maybe we ever were. And maybe they understand that, like, you can present stuff and put stuff on Twitter that, you know, I understand what you mean about it feeling a little more official, but um, they understand what a tweet is, right? And they know right. this True. is just somebody's reporting something from a meeting. This hasn't necessarily gone through a kind of a peer review right. sort of sort of mill. Um, I have been to more meetings where they explicitly at the front say, you know, please don't tweet anything, don't take any photos. Yeah. I think you can, and most of them that I've been to where that's been mentioned, you can 
you can tweet stuff about it, but they say please don't take photos because these might be, you know, results that haven't been put right. through the mill yeah, just I guess yet. That's a good, a good way of avoiding having your work turn into some sort of viral sensation. Not that that would necessarily happen, and you know <laughs> what I do, but <laughs> yeah, right. You've you've narrowed some error bar somewhere, and that, right. <laughs> that might not necessarily go viral. Is it too warm in here? Or is, no, no, is it's it, really nice. It's all right. Okay, yeah. the good good temperature. Um, yeah, so the, yeah, I was just poking around on your website, and I realized I don't even remember what quaternary is, so my oh, quaternary okay. page. Yeah, that's a good starting place. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was kind of just starting with your, like, job title here, and I'm very much kind of a modern, mostly physical oceanographer, so please feel free to, like, you know, you can explain stuff in a really basic way. Um, I usually say, like, just imagine that there's a science undergrad in the room, but... I'm, I know so little of the stuff that I'm, I'm going to be asking you a lot of basic questions about, like, how does that work? <laughs> what yeah, is sure. that? Yeah, so I don't even know what the quaternary is. Can okay, you well, that? <laughs> the quaternary is, is basically the Holocene and the Pleistocene, so it's this sort of last two, two and a half million years of the climate history that's sort of the ice ages, basically. Is it up to now? Does that include now, or does it... Well, uh, that's a great topic of discussion so you've probably heard about the Anthropocene Mm -hmm. which is this new geological um, boundary and it's pretty controversial but yeah I mean the Anthropocene should be part of the Quaternary as well so so the Anthropocene being the geologic era where human influence has become dominant yes what's the current thinking on that do people you said it's kind of controversial right do people think that that exists or um I think everybody would probably agree that human influence on the Earth system is um, greater than it's ever been in the past. Um, I think people, some people are quite conservative about what a geological boundary is. Okay. I mean, it used to be that the Holocene, which is, if you don't believe that we're in the Anthropocene, we'd be in the Holocene, and the Holocene is like the last 10, 11,000 years. Um, and that's supposed to be the time of humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some ways, yeah. The um, yeah, the Anthropocene is. Some people have put it in the last fifty years since nineteen or sixty years since nineteen fifty. That's sort of the geological boundary. Um, but then there are some people like um, Bill Rudiman, for example, who believes that he's got this early Anthropocene hypothesis, which basically suggests that you know the last six or so thousand years there's been a demonstrable impact of humans on the atmosphere. So this sort of rise in methane and rise in CO2, which is unlike previous warm periods, um, can be attributed to people. Oh, really? It's on a thousand-year time scale? Yeah. That's it, interesting. Yeah, it's sort of like with early rice production in Asia. Um, there's been a, they think, they've been sort of trying to quantify what the rice production was based on sort of the archaeological evidence and then trying to you know, come up with some estimates for what um, methane in the atmosphere would be like based on those things. But I think, you know, there's certainly some compelling evidence that humans have been messing with the climate system or the atmosphere well before the sort of industrial revolution. When you're growing rice, does that consume or emit methane? Which direction does that go? It emits methane. So, yeah, because you're flooding these fields, and then the flooding basically creates... Actually, I don't know the geochemical process, really, but, yeah, you you release methane. You put more methane. That's a really strong greenhouse gas, too, Mm -hmm. but... But short-lived. Short-lived, yeah. Yeah. So if it did change the amount of energy getting to the surface, 
it might not be around long enough to, you know, well, yeah, I don't know. You'd have to keep you know. producing methane, essentially. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You need a bigger and bigger excess of it above whatever's being absorbed back into the climate system. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so there's a question. So it's, it sounds like there's a clear, you know, in your community, in your scientific community, the Anthropocene is maybe not controversial, but the beginning of it, or like when, when should you draw the line on? Here's where human influence really started, uh, kicking up the climate system in some way, or where it's detectable, I, sh- I should say. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But I think, you know, I mean, I think people also call the Anthropocene the, you know, the great acceleration. And mm-hmm. I think if you, you know, if you look at any of those um, curves by Will Steffen, like any of those papers, you can see that, um, you know, like the amount of plastics, the amount of cars, the population of the planet, CO2 in the atmosphere, all these things, if you just look at, you know, plot those against time, you can see sort of this huge ramping up called the great acceleration. So, I mean, I think there's pretty, I think there's a pretty good um, reason for, Believing in the Anthropocene and also saying yeah. that it happened sometime around the 1950s. Increasing with population and increasing with energy usage per person. Yeah, yeah. pressure on the planet or pressure on the planet's systems and things like that. Yeah. yeah. So the uh, the other term in your title is paleoecologist. Yeah. Is that, yeah. <laughs> Can you say more about that? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, it's sort of, I could be a paleoecologist or a paleolimnologist or a paleoclimatologist. Limno is lakes, right? Paleo, yeah. Paleo lakes. Yeah. yeah. So, basically, I'm trying to reconstruct past climate or environment, um, yeah, using sort of, in my case, lake sediments. Hmm. So... What I'm interested in is how this recent great acceleration that we're in fits into a much longer time scale perspective. So rather than, you know, I mean, if you look at weather records, for example, from Greenland, they go back to the 1850s, or you go to weather records from the Southern Ocean, they go back to maybe the 1940s. And so you, you know, we see all these major changes in the last several decades, but what's interesting is to know what the long-term variability is going back thousands of years. So... You know, is the recent increase in temperature in the Arctic, for example, unprecedented in the context of the last several thousand years or 10,000 years or what? So that's right. the kind of work that I try to do. What would you say about that? The, the Arctic, the, is the change in the Arctic unprecedented? Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing I, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we've got all across Greenland, I've worked sort of all around the coast of Greenland, and you can see that you, know, you can get maybe 13,000-year records out of most of Greenland. Some places people have found much longer records. Um, but you can see that the last several decades, like since the 1920s, but especially since the 1980s, are unprecedented. In the north of Greenland, for example, they're unprecedented in the context of the last 3,500 years. 3,500, yeah, okay. Yeah. And so the you use a bunch of proxies, right? You use a bunch of sediments, you said, and ice cores, I'm guessing, too, where it's appropriate mm-hmm. to work out what the temperature used to be, you know, in those past eras so that you can hopefully get a time series of here's what the here's what the temperature evolution looks like and here's how it changes on different time scales. Yeah. Yeah. So the um right, and you're saying that that I mean, that's consistent, right? With the uh, polar amplification, you know, we expect the poles to experience some of the most rapid change relative to the rest of the planet, partly because of the ice albedo feedback mechanism in the Arctic Ocean anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you, so that's your sense from, you know, the work that you've been doing 
is that yeah you've been able to demonstrate that yeah the the, the recent decades have been kind of unprecedented um, so the um, I, I kind of I, I was looking at one of your papers the one that came out in 2017 and the, it was on this lone spruce pond in Alaska. Oh, yeah. 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 Do you want to talk about that one? Because that might be that's more specific, right? Yeah, like for we, sure. We've got the big overall picture kind of, but now we can dig into the specifics of that that bit of work you did. Yeah. So what was that? What was that about? Well, that was a project that actually had been already worked on by a group of people led by Daryl Kaufman at the University of Arizona or Northern Arizona. Um, and what they did was they cored a lake in Alaska, sort of in southwest Alaska, and were looking at how um, the vegetation, basically the environment had changed since deglaciation. Um, and I got a hold of some core material and looked at the diatoms. So mostly my work looks at diatoms, which are these small photosynthetic algae that produce a sort of an opal cell walls so they look like a little jewelry box they're mm -hmm. quite pretty um, but you can identify different species and the species all have very different um, ecological requirements so some like to float in the water column some like to live at the bottom some like a lot of nutrients some like very low pH some like a lot of salinity so you can kind of distinguish what the what the ecological characteristics of the lake are based on what you can find in the sediments so right. okay. sort of all the work I do basically uses that principle in different ways. How do we know which diatoms like which environment? Yeah, so usually what we do is we, you know, if I go, for example, to sub-Antarctic islands, what we do is we take samples from 40 lakes or 60 lakes, and we look at the water chemistry, and we look at the diatoms, and then we basically create a statistical model. So you can, um, yeah, create a transfer function for, for example, conductivity, um, and then going back in time, you can reconstruct what the conductivity is based on this understanding of the modern yeah. species environment relationships. The conductivity being the, the kind of you pass some current through some water, and that yeah. gives you some measure of how much stuff is, yeah. is suspended in there. Which the, is the a, saltiness. Yeah, exactly. The salinity. It's the saltiness. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so you use the diatom distributions that you can observe right now mm -hmm. in the lakes all over the place to say. Well, here's what we've observed. These diatoms seem to like these conditions. These diatoms seem to like these conditions. So that you can then go to the lake you're talking about, take a core, take like a sediment core of mud and stuff that's on the bottom of the lake, yeah. and work through it and measure the composition you know, as you're going through the core. And I guess the deeper you get, the farther back in time you're going because stuff gets put down in layers yeah. you know, over the different geologic eras. And you can try to use your statistical model to say, well, here's the kinds of diatoms we think probably existed during period A and period B, or however mm -hmm. you want to divide it up. Okay, so you did that for this this lake. Yeah, so yeah. for the Northern Hemisphere, the diatoms are pretty well understood, and so you can really just like use anybody's model for pH or different things, or for, just for understanding what the basic ecology of the diatoms are. So I looked at the diatoms, and you can see that um, uh, what was nice in a way was that everybody had already done a lot of the work. So somebody had done the pollen and somebody had done the geochemistry on the core. And so I came in and did the diatoms. And what you find is this really interesting relationship between um, the alder. So as these 
um, new landscapes are sort of exposed by the glaciers, you get this sort of classic succession of species. And so you get like small herbaceous tundra organisms that, um, or plants that, um, you know, things like dryas that you find um, in cold environments. So the glaciers pull back, they melt. Yeah, the glaciers yeah. melt and they leave behind this kind of exposed rock that turns into soil and through, you know, with the help of plants and precipitation, you have this sort of slow development of the landscape in terms of like trees and things like that. And what we see is that there's this, um, once you start getting alder in the catchment, which is, you know, basically like a water loving, very early tree that appears on most landscapes and after deglaciation. Um, alder is really interesting because it actually fixes nitrogen from the atmosphere and brings it down into the soil and as the leaves fall they also put more nitrogen in the soil so you can actually build up this amazing nitrogen pool or huh. basically fertilizer pool in the soil so which you, so then, the, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. which then helps the trees that, are, that come after the alder. Wow, so the alders are fertilizing they're creating fertilizer yeah, in the exactly. soil yeah. yeah and they're they're actually I mean you say fixing nitrogen they're like you know absorbing it in some way uh, chemically like there are chemical reactions that help it absorb the nitrogen mm-hmm. that that nitrogen then is up in the soil so that's really cool so those they kind of do this initial work that then other trees can benefit yeah. from. Yeah. Okay, so you see those showing up. So the alder shows up and then all of a sudden the algae in the lake change and what we find is that we get these very small planktonic algae, which love nitrogen, essentially. So um, it seems like what happens is you have the ice move away, you have the landscape become sort of colonized by these alder, and then the alder start bringing nitrogen into the system, and so then they also mm-hmm. change the algae in the lake, and then they create this kind of amazing ecosystem, but just based out of, out of alder. So, um, so in the story that we've told so far, uh, roughly how much time has passed? So, yeah, like thousands of years, actually. So yeah. you have this very slow buildup. And you also, have, I mean, in the landscape you have, you know, if you're in the very high Arctic, you'll also have nitrogen fixers. Things like cyanobacteria are pretty good at fixing nitrogen, like nostoc, for example. Or even some of the small herb um, tundra vegetation, they'll also fix nitrogen. But the scale that nitrogen is fixed by alder is enormous. And so mm-hmm. um, it really just completely changes the ecosystem. So... So the algae shows up, and then then do the diatoms show up after that? Well, the diatoms are the algae, so you oh, they are the algae. yeah, okay, you basically cool. see okay. this these planktonic algae all of a sudden kind of mm. increasing or establishing themselves, and then that's basically once you get the alder, then you get the diatoms, and then you basically have a stable lake ecosystem for mm. eight thousand years. Eight thousand years, so it can yeah. be it can be in a kind of equilibrium at that point. Yeah. yeah. Now I've got a dumb question. If I take the algae from my fish tank, mm-hmm. how is that related to the algae that you were just mentioning, the diatom algae? Well, there's lots you of know. different kinds of algae. Yeah. So the ones in your fish tank that are diatoms are probably look a bit brown. Okay. So like a kind of golden brown film on the yeah. side of your fish tank. It's probably yeah. diatoms. Yeah, so if you want to, for example, bring your son into the lab sometime with some fish tank ah. slime, we can look at it under ah. the microscope. That would be really cool. Yeah, that, that sounds cool. Oh, thanks for that. Yeah, yeah for sure. Really yeah, because it would be fun to know. Are they the are they not the same but you know how are they related to the ones that you know that that are in this kind of lake? Yeah, sometimes you, know? you find like there's a species that we find after glaciation in all across the northern hemisphere. Um, it's this very small diatom called Storocerello pinnata. Um, it kind of looks like um, 
like an oblong, like kind of like a lozenge with these big sort of like teeth marks in it. Mm. Um, and those you find in like urban fountains as well because yeah. they really, they're one of the only sort of species that really does well under very sort of uh, yeah, limited conditions or mm. kind of like crappy conditions nobody else wants to live in. It wants to live there. So um, we find those. But I always say that, you know, there's a whole... Um, field of um, forensic diatom work so if you find a drowning victim for example you can look at the diatoms in their lungs and find out where they died and right what kind of lake they were in yeah and I'm sure that if somebody you know brought me some lung tissue from somewhere I'd be able to say oh yeah the person died in Greenland or Alaska or the sub-Antarctic <laughs> islands or yeah. something you could have a whole side business of yeah, just yeah. <laughs> scientist and occasional <laughs> yeah, forensic yeah. diatomist yeah what um what level can you get down to could you get down to what side of the lake they died on or is that probably too hard for like yeah that might be hard let's do it that's you probably could too say specific kind of generally yeah I mean if somebody brought me some diatoms I could tell you more or less where they're from more or less yeah and you've got like there must be a, a database you're comparing it with or like a big well know, it's my mental database but mind. I'm sure I could actually compare it to you know some sort of giant you know correspondence analysis of all the diatoms and oh, your, yeah. your, your mental database so oh, that's interesting yeah. so yeah. You, you, you got most of them up, up here yeah they're kind of like think, you know, you know t- sort of acquaintances that you recognize <laughs> from different places old friends yeah well friends might be in a <laughs> An exaggeration. Not quite. Okay, you don't feel that warmly towards them, but yeah. <laughs> you, you know yeah. them. Yeah. Um, that's really fun. So we could do a quiz, you know, because I watch this. And yeah. Like you could, uh, that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a cool skill to have. A very. That'd be. That's a good like party trick. Yeah. <laughs> if you're like a really nerdy science party with a microscope. <laughs> I might be. <laughs> I might. That, that could. I could see that happening. Yeah. I, I'd be at that party. Yeah. Yeah, at the nerdy party with. That's kind of niche, but yeah. That's right. Everything's niche these days. That's fine. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, yeah. So this word, um, eutrophication. Yeah. I realized that only. I, I think I knew what it meant at some point, but I've forgotten. Can you remind me what? Yeah. So eutrophication means. Basically, the increase in nutrients in a water body. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that's what you were talking about. Yeah. With the, the Adlers are bringing the nitrogen down out of the atmosphere, well, fixing it into the yeah. system, into the soil. Yeah, and then changing the trophic structure so the yeah mm, yeah all the different um the whole food web like the structure of the food web and you know exactly. how that's partitioned around yeah yeah okay so was that the kind of overall story of that paper was you were working out the details of that sequence of here's here's when the adlers showed up roughly and here's you know when the algae showed up roughly and yeah yeah and also that you you know you expect with the Increased Arctic warming, you expect shrubification across the sort of what is now the tundra regions, and so you'd expect that you would then get more alder, you'd get more nitrogen, and so then you have this sort of cascade of, of changes that occur. So that could start happening at higher and higher latitudes yeah, exactly. as it warms up. Yeah. And, you know, you've got the record of here's the sort of pattern we could expect to see you know, exactly. over the next... Yeah, it's kind um, of like a template for what you should expect in different places with warming. Does that whole cycle speed up, or is uh, is there a bottleneck in terms of... No, it just takes the Adlers some amount of time, this amount of time, to do their, their work to get the nitrogen levels. No, I think... I mean, I think that the time is dependent on the temperature and also precipitation yeah. are the two main factors so I think in the case of you know Alaska after the glaciation you're still in a fairly 
you know, you don't have any soil whatsoever. Nothing's really been on the land aside from ice. And so, I mean, I think that's the part that's a bit slow. But once you start to get plants developing, then I think it can happen really quickly. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. for example, in the in tundra regions now, you would expect changes to occur really rapidly. Hmm. Possibly more rapidly than yeah. that story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and... Okay, I was just trying to think about what are the are there implications of like if you speed that process up and the whole you know uh, eutrophication mm-hmm. <laughs> process speeds up. Um, I guess there are implications for the kind of lake chemistry and the sort of things that can live in the lake and those ecosystems. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's yeah the problem for most things is not that things are getting warmer it's that they can't migrate fast enough or they can't you know the phenology so like when things happen for example to plants in the spring like when they develop their buds and things like that all those things are are kind of linked to the environment but if they change too quickly then there's sort of an off offset and then and then they have trouble so um animals and plants have to learn how to adapt very quickly and some probably won't be able to do it as quickly as they need to yeah some might be able to some might not be able to yeah yeah so there will be um do you think do you know much about um i'm sure you you know some stuff about it about permafrost i hear about permafrost a lot is that an aspect of of your work at all or it's not i mean it should be more because it's a huge it's a huge unknown actually Mm -hmm. i mean one of the yeah, one of the big questions I think now, especially for people who are working in Europe and um, is, you know, Russia is this huge, Russian, the Siberian Arctic is so poorly known. Mm-hmm. There's so few people actually like working on what happens when you melt permafrost, you know, do you release a huge amount of carbon dioxide? Most people think that you do, but then there's also all these growing plant questions. So it's really, people don't understand really the the amount of CO2 change that will result from melting permafrost. Yeah, if you melt this permanently frozen ground, you could end up with more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, more methane in the atmosphere mm-hmm. too, Yeah. Um, which is, a, like we mentioned a minute ago, a strong, short-lived greenhouse gas. Um, you occasionally hear about, you know, bacteria and viruses frozen in the... Right. And that's maybe less climate relevant possibly, but, you know, you hear about some of these possible, possible things. Um, yeah, so I'm uh, my brain just stopped. <laughs> it just just kind of like hit a wall there. Mm-hmm. Um, after lunch. Yeah, after lunch. I've never tried to record one of these after lunch before. Mm-hmm. I was hoping to. I usually do them in the morning because I'm a little bit more, you know, on top right. of it. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit more, just able to be in it and on top of it. But uh, none of the rooms were free, and I was totally booked up. Oh, really? Um, well in advance. Yeah. I don't know. It's often just completely booked up. All of our meeting rooms. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm going to leave it in too. I leave, I leave everything, <laughs> most everything in. If there is anything you want to take out, I'm happy to take it out. Yeah, but okay. like, I think one of my ideas uh, for this podcast was like, I just want to be more open. I just want to be more like, yeah, this is more of what it's actually like. You know, sometimes when two people are sitting around, one of their brains might just stop and they might just, <laughs> right. they might just start drooling yeah. a little bit going, Ugh. no, that's nice. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, because I think that I, I like polished stuff too, and I think there's there's plenty of you know there's lots of really nice polished science communication work being done, but there's no need for me to try to replicate that. There's, you right. know, I might as well do something a little different because I don't 
I'm, I'm not those folks and there's no need to duplicate their effort. And so I yeah. might as well just do the, plus it's kind of like in the style of a lot of podcasts that I enjoy and I've been yeah. listening to them just, you know, endlessly. So I might as well, you know, I, I like the format. So yeah, I think it also shows the sort of human side of science, which I think is often lacking anyway. So yeah, that's true. The, the human side of it, and also the community side of it, because sometimes scientists are painted as you know lone geniuses sitting up on a hill somewhere, you know, furiously scribbling away in some manuscript, and right. you know that's not often the case. You know, maybe every now and then you get to do that, but that's not. I've that's been not fantasizing about that you know. recently. You know, like when I was in Bre- uh, Bremen. You know, they have this sort of study institute, and you have this little apartment, and there's mm. really like absolutely nothing to do there. So <laughs> I was thinking, oh, that'd be so great just to like go and write papers. But I'm sure it'd be great for like two weeks, and then you, you know, then you're like, you oh. get really bored. <laughs> and you're like, I want somewhere to go, anywhere, yeah, to somebody to talk to, <laughs> anywhere other than the one cafe or something. Yeah, like yeah. Um, what's Hole is kind of like that. Have you been over there? In no, the I haven't. So it's uh, yeah, the the town is. The only thing that's in Woods Hole, um, at least when I was there, uh, research institutes and um, touristy restaurants, and that was pretty much it. You know, there was so just lobster rolls. Yeah, lobster rolls. Yeah, you could. Get, I could live on lobster rolls, though. Yeah, me too. I totally could. Yeah, yeah. Um, expensive. You know, they're, they're right. in that region yeah. because that's the you know Woods Hole is the jumping off point for you know, Nantucket and for um, Martha's, Martha's Vineyard, Vineyard and yeah. where you know. Like Norton, the guy who does Norton antivirus has a house out there, for example. <laughs> that, that's the sort of person who gets a house on Martha's Vineyard. I thought the Obamas had a house on Martha's Vineyard too. Probably. Probably. So it's a jumping off point for that kind of world. So all the restaurants are really touristy and pricey before you get there. But it's kind of a monastery, Woods Hole. You know, you can just, you could do the same thing. You could just be in Woods Hole and just do oceanography and eat the occasional lobster roll. Yeah. And it, I get this. I was there for about two weeks, and I think you're right. That was about right. Two weeks was really nice, but then yeah. at the end of that, I'm like, yeah, yeah. like all right, I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The uh, the kind of now famous. Well, it's been famous for a while. I don't mean now famous, but there's this joint PhD program between MIT and Woods Hole. Yeah. And uh, so those students get to like, you know, kind of live in one place or the other. They get to hop between, you know, Cambridge, yeah, Boston. The best and, of both worlds. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So I guess if they need to be isolated, they'll go down to Woods Hole, and if they yeah. want to be in the big city, they can come back up. Yeah, that come back up great. to Boston. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I know. I do you mind if we go back to some of the science stuff in a little bit? You know? Yeah. No, no. Um, so you go to Greenland a good bit, and you've been doing that a lot. What's sending you out to Greenland, or what? What has? What has taken you to Greenland recently? Um, well, I've been going for a bunch of reasons. I first started working in Greenland after I finished my master's. Um, I was asked to go um, work in Copenhagen on a EU project just to actually count diatoms from lakes. They needed somebody to do that work, so um, I did it, and then I turned it into a PhD, and then I sort of became like the, you know, Greenland diatom person. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty niche. Um, (laughs) But uh, in some ways it's been great because I've sort of worked all around Greenland from like east, north, northwest, west, south, um, on a range of different um, lakes and different projects from like recent climate change to 13,000 year histories to the Vikings and Mm. things like that, so... That's, that's the cool. real range of things. The Greenland diatom. So that that story must be different because there's there are no adlers, right? There are no trees and things. Yeah. You know? Well, there are. How does that change things? 
it changes things quite dramatically. It's a little bit more about climate. Okay. But I say that, but there's actually quite a lot of sort of soil development that happens. And so over the 13,000 year history, you actually see that the main kind of driver of landscape evolution, at least in the western part of Greenland, is really temperature and precipitation. Are we talking on the ice or is this no, little bits of land? Coastal areas. Okay. Yeah, actually there's like quite a bit of open land in Greenland. So mm. obviously the Greenland ice sheet is what everybody thinks of. Yeah, but yeah. Um, if you're like around the Arctic Circle, for example, on the west side, it's about 120 kilometers of yeah. ice-free land. I think that's about the biggest mm. in Greenland, aside okay. from the very north coast. Um, so some places have very small ice margins. Some places, obviously, the ice goes right to the edge of Greenland. Okay. Um, but that whole coast has an interesting history. So is it? should I be picturing the Greenland ice sheet melting? creating new lakes. Yeah. That's what I should be picturing for the kind of recent recent climate. And is that the sort of process you're studying is, you know, the Greenland ice sheets melting um, and the... Uh, help me out. <laughs> the diatoms. The diatoms. Yeah. Sure. Start responding Start to responding. that. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, if you're out on a lake on the coast, it'll be maybe 13,000 years old. And then as you go further inland, the lakes get younger and younger. Hmm. And so as you're kind of at the margin of the ice, you know, the lakes are, some of them are quite recent. Super young. So you okay. kind of have this time transgressive character. I mean, that's really why I worked on that project for my PhD hmm. was really to understand lake development um, in this kind of, you know, out of the context of Holocene climate. But it turns out that you would see sort of the same um patterns occur in every lake and they'd be offset so there's a natural pattern that occurs in every lake but mm. then there would be these big events that were happening across the region mm. so you could see the imprint of climate for example like as the climate got colder then you would see that it, there was also a shift Cause so that, that would happen to all the lakes at, at once yeah. yeah yeah so there's sort of a regional climate signal and then there was this sort of like very predictable kind of pattern of lake development that happened mm. regardless of you know what year it was, or yeah. With the offsets that you mentioned, because the lakes are literally different ages, they've been formed at different times as the Greenland ice sheet has melted, has continued to melt. Yeah. So has it been melting for a while? Is that the the direction it's been? Obviously, it's speeding up. You know, it has sped up recently, but has it been going in the direction of melting? Yeah. So because of the retreat away from the the ice age, right? Yeah. 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 So the sort of history of climate in Greenland is that, um, you know. 13 to 8,000 years ago, it was quite warm. Like, we say warmer than today, but probably not warmer than today, probably warmer than 50 years ago. Um, and so everything was melting really quickly. The, basically, the Greenland ice sheet went from being, like, right out on the continental margin to, you know, 60, 70 kilometers inland within, you know, 1,000 years or so. So really rapid melt. Um, and then it got colder, and the climate kind of, the, the Greenland ice sheet melt slowed. Um, and then everything kind of started to re-advance a little bit, say, two, 3,000 years ago, um, culminating with, like, the biggest ice advance, which was the Little Ice Age. And so since the Little Ice Age, there's been this really dramatic retreat of, of the Greenland ice sheet. Okay. Um, so we're kind of replicating what we saw 10,000 years ago, but doing it in real time now so um, one of the things that's interesting actually is that I worked on one of the lakes I worked on was on an attack so like an attack for those who don't know is a 
basically an island surrounded by ice, surrounded mm. by the Greenland Ice Sheet. Oh, cool. So it's like a little rock sticking up out of the Greenland Ice Sheet. Mm. And this little rock had two lakes on it. And so I looked at the records for these two lakes, and they both had about a 5,000-year record, um, which is sort of when the ice initially retreated mm. past the... Um, past the island and then the ice started to come around and made the Nunatak again and then it was there for about four well four and a half thousand years and then I flew over last year and it's no longer a Nunatak so it's now like you know the ice has retreated back around this little um, you know rock island and so now it's connected to the mainland again or wow. connected to the ice-free part of Greenland again. So and this happened just you know since you started. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. So there's yeah, it's really rapid. I mean, it's accelerating, but it's also retreating, and it's retreating in a way that you can see. And most people who live in different areas will say, oh, you know, in um, in uh, Umanak, which is a community north of uh, Lulisat, North Disco Bay. Hmm. Every year, the ice or the sun, you know, the sun dips below the horizon in the winter. And um, every year, the same day, the sun would come up again. Like they'd have their first sunrise of the year on February 28th or something. I don't know actually what day it was. Um, And they said because the Greenland ice sheet has gone down so much, it's actually happening two days earlier now. Oh, okay, yeah. And they know that cycle, you know, they're intimately familiar yeah, with that cycle. Yeah, it's like every year they have like a big party on the whatever day the sun comes back, but now yeah. it's coming back earlier because the ice is oh, disappearing. I see. The, the ice is disappearing because the sun literally appears earlier than it used to because the, that used to be part of the horizon with yeah. the ice. Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that, you, you hear, that's not the only story I've heard like that where, you know, folks have been who have been living in a place that has ice sometimes or all the time like even up in montana in the u.s and yeah you know uh, in colorado and some places where you know folks older folks who have been living there for decades they they can tell something's changed you know they see the ice melt they see yeah that that this peak used to have ice on it all year long now it only has ice during these months yes yeah, so it's i think it's really interesting to like connect our large-scale kind of climate data it's interesting and scary, but it's interesting to connect the large-scale climate data that we have with people's kind of on-the-ground, everyday experiences. Yeah, you know, it's, it's happening now. Like climate change is is here. It's not really a far-off, distant problem. Yeah. You know, it's it's currently impacting people. You know, right right now. Yeah. Yeah. One of the yeah. things in the Arctic is has been a real move in the last decade or so to really do work in the Arctic that's for the Arctic and by the Arctic and about the Arctic mm. for the people who live there. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of one of the questions is how do we, in the kind of work that we do, how do we make what we do relevant for people who live in communities? And, and you can see that, you know, so one of the reasons why I was in Greenland actually this year was I go every year with this group called Students on Ice and we take, this year was 150, I think, students from... Um, all over the world, but uh, about 40% are from the Canadian Arctic and some from Greenland as well, uh, indigenous kids. So we go around, this year we went up from Kangalooswak and Greenland up to Umanak and then across to the Canadian Arctic and then down Baffin Island a little bit and then we came back. There's tons of sea ice this year, so it was like our schedule got a bit messed up. But mm. um, yeah, one of the interesting things is talking with people who've grown up on the land and especially the older people who've been there for a while and have their parents' stories as well to talk about, you know, the changes that they see, you know, like the changes for, you know, 
they always go fishing for Arctic char like the same time of year in the same places. And the changes that they see in their lifetime are changes relative to what their parents said. And it'd be really interesting to see if there's a way to connect the kind of work that we do with the kind of knowledge that they have and, and actually make it meaningful. A lot of people talk about incorporating traditional knowledge into science, but mm-hmm. it's sort of it hasn't been done in a very compelling way and I don't think that the the work that we do, I mean I reconstruct climate variables essentially, so it should be possible to reconstruct, for example, ice on or ice off dates for different lakes mm-hmm. over time, you know. Yeah. And it would def- be interesting to do it in a community and be able to kind of really have it be calibrated to mm-hmm. the community in a way. Yeah, you could give a community like a history of here's the history of your lake. And yeah. uh, th- this could be harder but you might be able to make some statements about here's what could happen to it in the future, you know, based on what we understand. Yeah. 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 This is a natural variability of it going back thousands of years. Like how does that relate to your experience of it and how can we, yeah. What does the future look like? Yeah. I think that would be really interesting and really iterative. I guess you would need to like, you know, th- that would not be a one-off conversation. You, you wouldn't want no, to show up long, and say, yeah, here's a report. a long conversation. And I think, you know, I have a friend who works in on um, sea ice with hunters, and she was saying that a lot of the a lot of the work is building relationships with the communities and, yes. and really sort of getting everybody interested and, and sort of buying into the project and committing to the project so everybody feels like they're a part of it. And that means, like, meeting everybody's families and having everybody meet your family and like making connections that we don't usually make sort of mm-hmm. normal routine work at the British Antarctic Survey. <laughs> yeah, it's maybe uh, I, was, I was trying to picture how to write that into a grant proposal of like yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go hang out with this family for a week and we're going to chat and talk yeah. about like I think it's, I mean yeah, I think at least in Canada those things have to be part of the funding framework. Mm. It'd be nice if that was part of the funding framework here too. Yeah. But. But we say we like interdisciplinarity, so, you know. Yeah, so chatting with families is absolutely... Yeah. <laughs> you need social skills for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you need to build, build relationships and build a community. Yeah, I also like the idea of, you know, making the science that, that we're doing more accessible and more directly kind of applicable to, like, a specific community. That I imagine that would feel really good if you could, you know, if you could put that in the correct format and get it to yeah. something that the local folks would, uh, would would enjoy and would feel like, oh, I can get some value from this and some yeah. understanding from this. Absolutely. I think it's yeah. also a good way of like increasing science literacy or interest in science, too. You know, I mean, I think that there's yeah, a bit of a disconnect between people's everyday lives and science, and I think that, I mean, I don't know what you're interested in, why you got interested in working in science, but I think for me it was those sort of connections to natural places that I could learn about. Those are the kind of things that make you interested in science and make you become a scientist maybe mm-hmm. but it also helps you to understand if you're interested in it and you care about it and you're invested in it it makes it easier to to really advocate for it or uh, make that, changes happen is that part of what you're doing with the students on ice is you kind of you do a lot of hiking and what do you do do you talk about some of the features that you look at and the history of of them and how they're connected to climate and climate variability. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I spend most of the time, well, it's kind of a mix. Maybe, you know, half of it is probably talking about the area around us, where we are, you know, the if we're out in the zodiac, then the different things they can see, or how the ice is changing, or how the climate's changing. Um, and then a lot of it is also, like, you know, mentoring people. I think, you know, it's... Mm. Yeah. 
I can see that that you'd be good at that because I think you have a very kind of easy manner about you. It's easy to talk to you, and it's easy to Thanks, like Dan. you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you, you don't you don't throw up a lot of walls, you know, right from the beginning. Right, like, not know, at the you, beginning. <laughs> they come later. <laughs> That's funny. No, but yeah, you're an easy person to talk to, and you'd like. Um, uh, I, I could see you being good at like mentoring a, a group of people and kind of uh, uh, inviting them in. Like, I, I could see you being good at inviting people into like, yeah, come come look at this, come look at this science, and you know, come be a part of it as well. And yeah. and also. You know, talking to them about how their life is going and what sort of things they want to do. Yeah, that's good. So you go every year to do that. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. It's pretty great. Mm. It feels like you know, feels like it's a good way to make a difference or to contribute to something. Yeah. Is it physically? How how demanding is it physically? Are you having to? No, it's kind of like a luxury boat with you know really good food and mm. the challenge is not you know staying warm or well fed it's more like holding off on having your second breakfast <laughs> and, um, the research ship here is like that too like you're you're not you know you're not really in in imminent danger of you know, <laughs> exposure or getting yeah. too cold or something it's yeah. like Maybe I shouldn't have the dessert every night. I should like yeah. <laughs> I should hold off and not get the full five course meal that's available every every evening, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well I'm also a Zodiac <laughs> driver on those trips. So What is Zodiac? They're those inflatable boats. Okay. So, you know, I have a pretty precious cargo of ten students usually, so yeah. there's there's a certain amount of responsibility and you have to be very careful about everybody's comfort level and you know, pushing boundaries a tiny bit, but, you know, not scaring anyone or not mm. having anybody feel like they're having a bad time. And that can be challenging if there's big waves or, you know, big weather or things <laughs> like that. So mm. most of that's, you know, important just to smile and make sure you make eye contact with everyone and have them check in with you a little bit. Yeah, check in with them. Make sure nobody's super seasick or anything. Yeah. Yeah, because that can happen. Yeah. yeah. And I think if you're, you know, 15 and you're away from home and you're in these big waves and you're in Greenland and it's the Arctic and whatever, then, and you've never been in a boat before, then it's, you know, kind of intense. Yeah. Well, uh, even if you're not that young, you know. Right. That's <laughs> yeah. true. I don't think many... Folks, you know, at least not uh, not in the West, maybe like have had too many experiences where you're like, yeah, you're in a tiny craft in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. And yes, there's the the big nice boat is not super far away, but it it's you're not in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah right. <laughs> you're yeah. in the waves. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, maybe the sun's setting, and maybe it looks really appealing, and like, oh, I want to go back there. Yeah. Because <laughs> you feel scared, because the uh, you feel a little sick, and the waves are tearing you up and down, and like, I could be drawing on a personal experience with this, possibly. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, that's really good. So, where did you um, ha- where did you do your PhD stuff? You mentioned that you did a lot of this PhD work, you know, in in Greenland, that that was the kind of study site. Yeah, so I did my PhD at the University of Toronto. Yeah. Um, and I sort of came up with my own project, sort of building on what I did for this EU project in right. Copenhagen. So right. yeah. it was sort of a loose consortium of um, advisors, hmm. um, which was good in some ways because I had tons of freedom and not good in other ways because I was a little bit disconnected and I didn't right. really, I wasn't part of somebody's pet project or, you know, so there was not that much investment maybe in my, um, 
career development oh, as right. such. Okay. So um, you weren't as plugged into the community aspect of it right away necessarily. Yeah. Because mm. um, you didn't have that advocate who was yeah you know, fighting for you necessarily. Yeah. I'm not saying they weren't, but you know. No, no, yeah. that's I mean that's that's true. So uh, yeah, so it was. I mean, it was good. It, PhDs are tricky. I think you're supposed to sort of like childbirth. You're supposed to get to a point where you're like, oh my god, I can't do this anymore, and then, you know, and then you can finish, or and you can have the baby, or <laughs> right, <laughs> various breaking points in your life that you signed up for. Yeah, you do sign up for it, don't you? Yeah. So the, um, I guess it forces you to be independent. Like the experience you had forced you to be independent and forced you to like, when you said that you put your own project together, I was thinking about how. Um, is that more common in, in Canada? There are big differences between PhD programs in the UK and US, and I'm less familiar with Canada. Yeah. Often in the US, there's a bit more of a, the, the onus is kind of on the student to come up with the project, but depending on who your advisor is, you might get different degrees of assistance with that sort of you yeah. know, f- formulation process. I think the Canadian system is identical, more or less, to the US system in that okay. way. Yeah, right. I've been surprised here, actually, how... Um, prefabricated the PhD projects are. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think a huge part of um, the learning involved in a PhD is really the kind of like screwing up a little mm. bit and developing a question that you can answer or try to answer or, you know, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of the intellectual work in a PhD is in that creating the project and so yeah. I kind of wonder I wonder what what people are missing if they do a PhD that's kind of already thought out for yeah. them in a way. Me too, although the PhD seems to serve a different function here almost. It's not quite as much of a pathway into academics necessarily like it can be, Yeah. but there are tons of folks who, um, who even when they're signing up for it, don't necessarily think of it as like, oh, yeah. well, this might be an academic thing. They kind of know, yeah, I want to do a PhD because um, it it's a challenging thing that I can do and it's something that I want to explore a little more and when I get out if you're in the UK you can be like and when I get out I'll only be like 22 or 23 <laughs> yeah, right. and I'll still have most right. of my 20s and ahead of me and will be like you're 30 and yeah <laughs> and going like well I'm locked in now yeah <laughs> I've clicked the seatbelt it's <laughs> true and maybe you know I think maybe when we did our PhDs there's still this idea that you you know, you had a good chance of getting into academia mm. at the end of it. It wasn't like, uh, I think, you know, in the last five years, there's been a real shift in the sort of expectations of what you're supposed to get out of it. Maybe it's more than five years. Maybe it's more like 10 years. But. Yeah. Have the, have the statistics of that changed? Or is it, you know, in terms of the percentage of folks who end up with some kind of long-term, stable-ish academic job from, from a PhD, have the statistics changed? Or are we, just, are we just talking about it more now in terms of like, well, here's the actual percentage of people who go on to, to who manage to stay in academia somehow. Um, this is, to get back to that science Twitter thing, mm-hmm. um, I did see there were some good infographics on science Twitter about the percentage of, it was about biology because there's way more data for that sort of route, and uh, the, the infographic showed you the percentage of folks who, you know, kind of go off into different careers at some point during the usual academic pathway from, uh, you know, bachelor's and master's and PhD and postdoc and, and on, and the uh, the take home you know the percentage of folks who go all the way and become some kind of permanent 
researcher or permanent academic somewhere, that's a really small percentage, you know, right. and which has always scared me a little bit. Not so much. It scared me because I just want to know where everybody's going, because right. the the unemployment rate is low. Like if you look at PhDs, the unemployment rate of PhDs is below the kind of background, like the the kind of mean state, you know, general population. Global unemployment. Well, no, <laughs> like in a, in a country, you know, like you pick a country in the U.S. anyway. And uh, but I have a very poor sense of where everybody's going. Yeah. But the the reason I brought up that infographic is that they had a great point they had a great take-home message which was like no um becoming a professor that is the alternative career you know we we sometimes frame the discussion in terms of like academia or alternative careers and it's like no no you have it backwards yeah (laughs) academia is the alternative career professor you're the weird one right (laughs) who who has stayed in this yeah Yeah. that's right i read a dispiriting article a while ago i can't remember where it was but it was sort of it was like a call to academics to stop whining about the lack of um you know i mean i'm sorry maybe saying that in an exaggerated way but um yeah it's just you know not complain about the fact that there weren't any fixed term positions and are not fixed i mean open-ended positions um or fixed positions um, that we should think of our work more like um, musicians think about gigs. Oh, God. And I was like, oh, you know, but you don't, yeah. I mean, they said, you know, if it's your passion and science is your passion, then you should treat it like, you know, you're a musician and you're, you know, putting together, you know. But Plenty of dismissive people on the internet. Yeah, like, but it yeah. wasn't on the internet. It was, you know, I can't remember where it was. I'll, I'll find it and send it to mm, you. Okay. Yeah. But so, often artists have another job, right? Yes. I mean, that's the thing, right? Yes. You, you have a job that pays the bills. You're not going to be a scientist like on the weekends or the evenings no. and then pay the bills doing something else. No, it doesn't doesn't work. You no. know, it's hard enough like when you're, I mean, when I was in grad school, I, I at various times I was researching and teaching. Like I had a teaching, uh-huh. the side teaching job for some part of my PhD. Like and, adjunct teaching yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and that was hard enough. Like that was, that was difficult. I don't really know how I got through all that because right. it was, you know, new. I, I just moved to Atlanta to a new city and I had the teaching job and I had, you know, my son had just been born and it was this insane time. Wow. And somehow, somehow we got through it and we pushed through it. But um, that's not sustainable, right? No. You, I can't, I could not have made a science career living that kind of lifestyle. No. It just wouldn't have, have happened. And I guess the difference with like a musician or an artist, you know, they can still, they can usually live in a city. They can like live somewhere. They can plop down. Stay there. And they say, this is where I live. And I'm now going to go, you know, drive to my gigs or, you know, take, take trains to my gigs and stuff, but they can still keep coming back to the same place. Yeah. But with our kind of jobs, you typically have to go to that institute. Yeah, three-year gigs. Yeah. Yeah. The next one might be in Australia. The next one might be in Canada. The next one might be, you know, somewhere else. And you, um, you don't always get moving assistance, you know, and you don't right. you don't necessarily make a huge salary either. So it becomes real tricky to to keep it going sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think I found that I don't have a lot of patience for folks who are kind of being who are dismissive of like some of these concerns, just because. Um, well, I don't know. That's just my patient love at this point in my life, and maybe that's a maybe that reflects my life circumstances. Yeah, I don't, I don't <laughs> yeah it's probably I don't. both of our life circumstances. <laughs> yeah. 
It's like, shut up. <laughs> Doing the best I can, okay? I need yeah. to complain every now and then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. True. You need to kind of let off some, some steam every now and then. Yeah. No, but even, uh, I, 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 I do recognize being a science, scientist is a privilege, and this is, in many ways, a privileged position. But I think both can be true, right? We can appreciate that we're in a privileged position while also being honest about the fact that the uncertainty is stressful yeah. and it does weigh on you a bit. It, it is something that is on your mind. For sure. And you, you don't always have a good sense of, like, this place, wherever you're living, you know, you don't know if it's going to be your home or not. You right. just don't know if you can really put down roots. So for me, you know, moving around, I feel like I have a lot of homes spread all over the place. Like, I have a personal connection to most of the places I've worked and, and lived and I feel like I could go back to any of them and pick that feeling right back up again of like, oh yeah, I know this. This is my this is one of my homes. Yeah. So now I'm kind of my my feeling of home and community is spread out all over the place. Yeah. And then your children, when you drag them around from place to place, they start saying like, oh, let's go home. And you say, well, where's home? And they're like, well, the hotel. The hotel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. like the extreme end of it, but yeah, it can be a little. Yeah, so I, I've been talking too much about me. I want to hear. My, <laughs> we were talking about the general issue, right? The general kind yeah. of having to move around. So, what's what? Do you, do you mind talking a bit about your experience with that? You know, you mentioned dragging your your son around, and what's your pathway been like? Yeah, so when I finished my PhD, I um, was in Toronto, and I had a little bit of postdoc money to write up. Um, but then, and I'd taken some time off too when my son was born, so I was kind of like working on my PhD, finished it, and then had like a year or so that I wasn't really, you know, I was doing a little bit of postdoc work. Um, and then I got offered a postdoc in France, and it was just like 11 months, and I was like, mm. oh, fun, you know, go live in France for a year. That'd be great. So I packed up my son and I, who was three at the time. Three, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we went to Besançon, which is in the Franche-Comté, which is like a very small city and yeah, in eastern eastern France, kind of on the Swiss border, um, and we lived there actually for three years. So mm. you know, like we were saying, you know, you don't know how long you're gonna stay anywhere. I mean, these things sort of like get. Actually, all of my contracts got progressively shorter. So oh, it was yeah. like eleven months, and then I got another year, and then I got nine months, and six months, oh, and geez. three months, and you know, it just mm. felt like. You know, the kind of world is closing in on you a yeah. little bit. So I was like, all right, I got to get out of here. Yeah, yeah. So we went back to Canada. And actually, I worked, um, I was finishing up some papers and doing a lot of artwork. So that's like my other side is, yeah. you know, I paint and do prints and things like that. So. Yeah, I've seen some of your really nice, is it watercolor? Yeah. You know, watercolor you're doing, like, um, when you were on the, the JCR did some. I oh, you on posting. the Treshnikov? Oh, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wrong ship. Yeah. yeah when, uh, around Kruwailan, I think, yeah. when you went there, I remember you posting a lot of watercolors from there. Yeah. yeah so you were doing some of that. Yeah, so there. I actually like had lots of shows and was yeah, doing that kind of full-time. Oh, okay. You got, um, oh, you had shows and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that was good, but it's a little bit like science in the sense that it doesn't pay particularly well and it's not a lot of job security. Right. Um... And then I saw the position offered here at Bass, and so I thought, oh, maybe I should do that. I mean, they're looking for somebody who, you know, works on diatoms for paleo climate in remote environments with lots of fieldwork experience, which yeah. is me. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Hmm. So I applied for that, and that was a three-year 
post and I think I've been here for mm-hmm. yeah. years now. So How old was your son when you moved to Canada, back to Canada? He was just starting grade one, so yeah, yeah just six. So okay. he was, yeah, he was in um, an école maternelle, like the kindergarten in France, and it's it's pretty well set up there, so, you know, you can basically, it's like daycare, you can drop your kid off at 8.30, pick them up at 4.30, mm. um, and then, yeah, and they feed them like three-course or four-course lunches. <laughs> um, nice. Yeah. And then, and so he was totally bilingual, which is great. And then we moved back to Ontario and he refused to speak French for (laughs) two years. Um, And then we came to Cambridge and I think it was hard for him to come here. He was eight at the time. Mm, Now he has a very strong uh, Canadian identity. So every, you know, he just wears Team Canada shirts and was really into hockey and there's no hockey here. Right. So it was a bit of a a bit of a challenge. Yeah, he felt out of place. He felt like he wasn't quite you know, yeah, plugged like in. Yeah, didn't fit in. And, mm. yeah. I mean, to be fair, you can have that feeling even if you stay in the same place all oh, your life. Sure. You know? yeah. so that's I think the, most people you know, that I know felt like they didn't fit in yeah. most of their lives. So, But if you're a kid who's getting shuttled around, you have like an easy thing to blame. <laughs> it's totally true, yeah. <laughs> it's because I keep moving. Yeah. Maybe not. You might not. Yeah. <laughs> For me, I, was, I stayed in, you know, I grew up in the same place. We moved to a house when I was like four or five and then you know I moved out when I was 20 yeah. <laughs> or like 19 maybe mm-hmm. and uh yeah I still felt out of place it didn't matter yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah I think now that he's in middle school like junior high grade seven you know it's challenging anyway and I think you know he's like mm, yeah maybe yeah <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's not just the yeah it's no. not just not being in Canada it's other things so. yeah not just the country necessarily yeah. yeah oh you know we um i wanted to ask you some other kind of big big scale questions um i really i've enjoyed talking about the personal stuff too i think that's really it's been really nice to get into i kind of forgot you mind if we were no, no, rewind no, no. a little bit and i kind of get back to because some of the science questions i like to ask are um so in your field um is it likely, do you expect to see any big changes in the future, or is it more likely that you're going to see refinements and you know smaller kind of adjustments, uh, or are there things down the pipe that could really you know change your field in a big way? And I'll, I'll let you kind of decide what big means, you know, yeah. uh, whatever threshold you want to put on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's some big changes ahead. I mean, I, I think from a purely methodological standpoint. I mean, now I prepare samples, I'm doing that right now, where I make slides and I look at diatoms under the microscope. I mean, I think it'll be maybe five years and we will just be doing, you know, eDNA on sediment stuff and we won't be dealing with individual species as we know them, like morphological species. It's kind of out of date. I mean, it's wonderful in a way, but it's it's very kind of like old school yeah. science. I mean, I think that we're going to get to the point where we're just kind of scanning cores. It does have an old world feel to it, doesn't yeah. it? Like, I drew this. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's this yeah. kind of shit. And, yeah, and, I mean, some parts are nice because you're looking at, you know, I've got books, reference books from the 40s or, you know, earlier that are, are basically, you know, still, they have the drawings that people did of, of the individual species. And so it's kind of a nice way of connecting with the history of the science. But I think, you know, it's 
totally time consuming. Um, it's a lot of human labor, um, you know, so it's mm. not not necessarily the way forward. Um, so when you said eDNA, electronic DNA? Is yeah, it just like... Just like routine basically processing of course for environmental data and information I mean I think that that's where it's going I think also one of the things that we do is we create these you know paleoclimate reconstructions and then what we really want is to be able to sort of integrate that with the kind of work that you do like modeling you know and really fitting what we do into a much bigger kind of pattern and process and trying to sort of, yeah, see how, how the climate system is changing, for example. Um, and I think that that is going to be the big change that occurs in the next little bit is that we'll actually start making those links a little bit better as it is now. It's like, there's a few data points and people are saying like, Oh, the model doesn't match the data or things like that. But I think that we're, um, as we're better able to understand complexity in, in these systems, that will that will change. I think the other major change is that because we're dealing with past climate in a very dynamic, changing environment right now, I think that a lot of the work that people in my field are going to be doing is actually just like looking at what we're doing now and understanding it kind of within a, a longer perspective. So, I mean, I think, you know, the environmental changes that we're expecting or anticipating in the next two decades, for example, are so large that they're going to make us reevaluate what we know about the climate system. So I think that that's going to be a major... Yeah, that the climate shift could push things into a new regime that maybe hasn't existed before. Yeah. And this particular combination of temperature and other conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that... uh, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I is think it? even the fields of like regime change or tipping points or all these things, these are non-linearities in the Earth system, are things that we don't do a very good job at understanding mm-hmm. right now. But they seem to be kind of where we're headed. So, yeah. non-linearities and tipping points. Okay, yeah. So those could be some big areas to kind of keep your eye on yeah. in the near in the near future. Um, and I kind of I wanted to talk more about. Um, is there anything that isn't being talked about enough? Is there anything, and this could be, you know, we could be talking about, if you want to stay in just science, that's that's fine, but also I eventually, I wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of broader climate conversation yeah. that involves, you know, not just science, but, you know, all other s- sectors of society, and are there aspects of the climate problem that you're aware of, or that you have your eye on, that maybe just aren't being discussed enough, that you would like to see more noise, you'd like to hear more noise uh, about? Well, I think for me, in some ways, the main issue is that there's so much noise that people people have kind of disconnected. And so I think one of the reasons why I like working with students on ice, for example, or last year I did Canada C3, which was this trip around Canada, is I think it's really important to connect people with their environment in a kind of knowledgeable way Um, and then sort of making them feel like they... uh, have some responsibility towards it, but also some kind of agency, like they can make changes happen. And so, yeah, one of the things that I'm kind of interested in is not so much creating more noise or whatever, but trying to create ways for people to connect with the environment. That's really, yeah, that's a really nice answer. I like that. So it would be giving people kind of a more, more ownership of their aspect. They're, they're part of the 
more ownership of a corner of the problem of yeah. like, okay, yeah, this is my my glacier or this is my I have a I, I have seen this glacier I have seen this feature and I have a personal connection to it yeah. and I want to keep up with it and um, no, that, that makes sense no I, I like that and um, I was just reading about oh, sorry listening to a podcast rather and I, I'm going to get all the details wrong and I can't remember any of it I think it was happening in Canada where there was a there's a glacier that is subject to some aspects of real-time monitoring where it's mm-hmm. like an ice feature that's subject to and uh, then in Canada and a, a couple I think it's a couple provinces over there's an art installation that the shape of the art installation responds somehow to the shape of the wow. of the ice feature really? I'll have to look it up yeah I'll have to oh, look it up again really cool. yeah I'll have to look it look it up and post a, a link to it um, so but that that idea that example popped to mind mm. in that and I think that art installation they're trying to do something similar we're giving people a, a concrete thing they can go visit and look at that is connected to the real world so that it's less of an abstraction so that it's not just another screaming headline on twitter it's not just it, it's not just internet panic you know it's yeah. uh something yeah, they can something go have a, and, yeah. yeah connecting yeah that's right no, that's a really nice that's a really nice answer there is al- already a lot of um noise was was a slightly irreverent choice of words, <laughs> yeah. uh, which I like to use. Um, but there, there is all the information about how the climate system is changing. It's yeah. out there. It's yeah. out there. And if, if you want it, you know, you can go find it. And in fact, noise is absolutely part of the problem. Not only noise, uh, you know, well, I want to distinguish between noise and signal, right? I mean, there's, right. there's useful stuff, there's useful information, but we do know there are as uh, Naomi Oreskes has documented very thoroughly, there are bad actors out there who are putting a lot of noise into the climate debate, yeah. purposefully misleading people, purposefully putting a lot of garbage you know, information out there, um, usually you know, tied right back to large fossil fuel interests, big money, I mean, right. that sort of thing. It's, and it, you know, I think before reading that book, I sort of knew all that stuff was there, but now after reading that book, it's really it's kind of devastating to read and see it so thoroughly documented and so thoroughly laid out. And like, yeah, here are the specific scientists uh, who you know, physicists who have decided that they can just trade all of the, you know, they can trade their scientific credentials because they they have this very strong ideological sense of like, well, I don't want any kind of government regulation whatsoever. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm willing to put noise into the conversation because, you know, they're, they're so fundamentally opposed to any kind of regulation. It's almost like they're willing to do anything to, to stop it. Right. And I've taken us down a dark rabbit hole for some reason, but, <laughs> you know, but it's something I think about and it's something that, you know, I'm kind of aware, uh, well, I, I am you know aware of, and I think it's hard to grapple with that. But, and where I'm heading with all this in a very long-winded way is I wanted to ask, um, there are plenty of folks out there, I don't know how big of a thing this is in Canada, but in the U.S. anyway, um, there are a lot of folks who just don't like the idea of, of doing anything about climate. They don't, they fundamentally like, don't like the proposed solutions, they don't, you know, they don't like the idea of a carbon tax, they don't like the idea of, you know, government doing anything. And I think part of the exercise for me is to, like, I need to try to understand where they're coming from and try to have some kind of sense of, like, well, here, here's where that feeling is coming from. And um, what do you think, and you can respond to this, like, how you feel like the folks who are kind of opposed to climate action, 
what do you think they're worried about? Like the folks who are, they're, they're definitely not on board the train in terms of like, yes, let's go low carbon and let's you know do everything we can to reduce environmental impact. What do you think? What do you think is bothering them? What do you think is, is? Well, I think, I think, people are generally afraid of change. Yeah. Right, and so I think that they, the the world is changing very quickly right now. So it seems like maybe everybody's even kind of responding more sensitively to any kind of change by kind of holding on to what's important to them you know and I think for a lot of people the idea that you would change your lifestyle in any way to combat something that they can't see I mean now you could argue that they can probably see it but Mm. um, you know if they can say like oh I can't really see it so it doesn't maybe matter so much I think that the idea of having to change their economic situation their financial situation or change their lifestyle in any way is like really a hostile Mm. threat Um, and I think you know while you were talking I was thinking that the you know one of the tragedies in a way in North America is that and or maybe just in general around the world is that we're so mobile that we don't live in the same place that we grew up in and our parents don't live in the same place they grew up in and so we don't have those connections to places that we used to have. Right. Right. So it's very easy to kind of say like, well, I don't see the change and you don't see the change because you just moved to your neighborhood like Mm. three years ago. So, you know, the oak tree that's in the middle of the, you know, the green or whatever, isn't something that's part of your personal landscape and narrative, you know? And, you I can't think, talk to your great granddad about like what did this mountain used to yeah you know, what did the glacier here used so to look like, like we don't have like stories about places and connections to places in the way that we used to and so I think it's very easy then if you're feeling a little bit lazy about not jumping into this huge like very scary challenge it's very easy to say like oh I don't see the change you know or I don't doesn't matter to me mm-hmm. you know or I don't want to do anything about it um, so that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is that importance of like making a connection with a place, even yeah. if it's like your local stream or your, you know, your garden or personal connection to a bit of nature, to yeah. a bit of like the physical yeah. system, the, the real nature, natural system, yeah. all by itself. Right. That's why it's so important to take our kids outside and mm. like, do things with them outside, so they have like a sense of connection. Yeah, some kind of positive feelings associated with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and when you were talking about how change is scary, you know, that makes me think about that. I'm not an economist, but the the bits that I hear suggest that you know we could transition to a low carbon economy in a way that actually generates a lot of wealth. It actually could be really good economically, you know, yeah. <laughs> like. All right. And that story doesn't get out. It doesn't seem to fully connect with the climate discussion you know it doesn't really seem to stick even though um it's out there Mm -hmm. and like i know you know emily schuttberg for example tried to put that in her book that she did with uh, the prince of wales and tony tony juniper where you know they they outline they kind of followed this simple serious solvable structure that's not what they called it but that's one way you could think about it is they so here's the basics of climate change yes it's serious yes we can do something about it and by the way, no, you don't have to go live in a cave. Right. Actually, society can generate a lot of wealth doing this. Right. That like we, we as a society, made created a lot of wealth by generating the fossil fuel, you know, 
energy and climate energy system and we can do it again we can generate a lot of wealth by making a new energy system yeah so yeah for some reason that discussion doesn't, doesn't get stuck but that doesn't get out there but but even that's like an abstraction right even that's right. like you know oh well, yeah. it looks like this is going to be but if you're somebody who is fundamentally afraid of change even suggesting this way over here is going to be better that's scary yeah because you don't know if it's going to be yeah. better you don't you know you know that what you're doing right now seems to be working for you so why would you change it yeah yeah and i think also like with this whole like populist growth in you know all these western countries there's even more fear people are afraid yeah. of their neighbors they're afraid of losing their jobs they're afraid of everything and yeah. so you know making big changes for climate change is so low down on their priorities unfortunately yeah the political leaders are stoking they're encouraging mm-hmm. fear and you know, hatred us versus them they're encouraging that for their own political gain and their own leverage because that seems to work the same everywhere right all you have to do is tell people like well the outsiders are coming to get us we need yeah. to keep we need to keep them out or we'll be gone you know or, or we'll be eradicated so you tell everybody that and make them afraid and then you accuse anybody who speaks against you. Of, well, they're just being—they're they're just a traitor. Yeah. So you exploit those kind of tribal um, tendencies that, right. that we all have. But that's like you know, you know, political like game. Pure, you know, grade school politics. Yeah, you know, it's really—it's pretty. It is <laughs> pretty juvenile. It is, and I, I hate that it seems to be working so well. Yeah, it's <laughs> so frustrating. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I thought we were more sophisticated than that. Yeah, uh, um, but. Uh, yeah, that's that's a nice nice discussion, and actually, um, that makes me think about. So you, I, I will admit, um, I did not see this yet. There was this documentary. Mm-hmm. Did, did you go off and it was this thing where you were meeting? Can you talk about this where you met with Al Gore briefly and oh, kind yeah. of had to? Sure. Did yeah. any of that end up in a, in, in the documentary? Yeah, I have a sort yeah. of it's like a cameo. You have a cameo in there. Yeah, okay, I, I haven't funny. seen it. I haven't seen oh. it yet. Well, yeah, I ran into Rob Arthur and met lunch the other day and he's like oh I saw you on Netflix and I was like oh really <laughs> <laughs> yeah that sounds all right um yeah so we I helped host Al Gore on the Greenland Ice Sheet he came to film the beginning of the new Inconvenient sequel is like on Greenland um and it's I think it's the only part of the film that really is about like science okay um and so they came in July and we flew up from Alulasat um, and then we went to Swiss Camp, and Swiss Camp is basically like a platform with two Weatherall tents sitting on giant pylons going down into the ice. And it's been there since 1990, um, and it's been taking continuous climate measurements. And so it's kind of, it's the only place really on the Greenland ice sheet that's been like sitting there in the same, more or less the same place, it moves 30 centimeters a day, um, but more or less the same place um, recording climate and energy balance kind of um, measurements since you know, for that long um, so yeah he came up and um, he went up on the platform and then we went further down the ice and looked at some moulins so like meltwater that was mm-hmm. coming down this huge kind of river on the ice sheet and then it goes down into this huge cavern basically to the bottom of the ice and then mm-hmm. goes out um, we didn't obviously go down to the bottom of the ice or didn't, in the ice with Al Gore, but didn't um, go rafting with yeah, that. yeah, yeah. But I was in charge of putting in all the ice screws, which is, as you can imagine, kind of nerve-wracking when you've got the Mr. Vice President. 
So the ice, what, what do the ice crews do? What, what's the function of that? Well, just to keep everybody. So everybody was very keen to kind of look down into oh, the right. hole. And okay. you don't want people looking down into a hole if they're not wearing harness and like roped in and attached to the ice in, yeah. a, in a real way. So You don't want them falling in. Yeah, that's yes, right. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah. yeah, how was that? Or did you get much time to talk? Or Yeah, we had actually quite a lot of time to talk. He's a really... Um, approachable person yeah like really nice to talk very easy to talk to yeah. you know like you I mean yeah so it came out actually when I was in the Arctic and I was on a ship and so I sent a friend of mine a message and I said hey can you go see the Al Gore film and and she was like why do you want to see whether you look <laughs> you look bad in the film and I was like yeah pretty much so then she wrote me back and she said she said, yeah, it's funny because you're the only person in the film who doesn't call him, like, Mr. Vice President. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> what do you call him? I was like, oh, there you go, Al. And he's like, thanks, Bianca. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of it. But he's yeah. the kind of person that you just sort of, you you call him Al. Yeah. But that's also the world we live in, right? There's no, there's very, very little formality. <laughs> no, we're well, not, the... we're not used to going around yeah. being like, professor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you and I are North Americans. I think, you know, if you mm-hmm. go to Switzerland or other places then there is more of a structure there in mm. terms of like how you talk to people and yeah the pronouns even change in german don't they yeah, if, yeah you're like supposed to use a whole different yeah, set of pronouns like hair your hair doctor <laughs> yeah dr dan oh gee yeah <laughs> yeah that's interesting yeah it's um i was um again my brain has stopped i'm so frustrated <laughs> Uh, that late afternoon lull. Yeah. Know, that late afternoon lull. A little blood sugar. Yeah. yeah. It could be. I was just thinking about how it was interesting. Al Gore, where I grew up in the southeast, was such a polarizing figure mm-hmm. somehow. And I was just thinking about the predicament from his perspective of like, you know, he has, you know, he, he has this environmental issue that he's really passionate about. He gets into politics and he thinks, this is my this is what I can do. I can do something, you know, that I think is very important and I can try to bring it up and to highlight how important it is. Um, and he, he does it and he, you know, makes a documentary and he tries to put the, that message out there. And yet the way it's received by, yeah, you know, folks in Southeast it Georgia. It's like a Democrat thing or a, Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. That's, and I think that's, that's part of what happened, right? Yeah, Was that I agree. It's... A lot of people saw, oh, some Democrat which they feel very tribal about and they feel yeah. very like that's not my team yeah. you know a democrat talks about climate change and they're like well i guess that's not for me then <laughs> right <laughs> because i'm not that yeah and uh yeah that's that's such a tricky problem yeah it's a horrible problem i feel bad for him that that was the way it worked because i think inconvenient truth was a really good film yeah i mean it was sort of like yeah the sort of very well researched, very well done documentary about climate change. Mm-hmm. And from my, I mean, I worked with lots of people who worked with him or who advised him or whatever. But you know, the science was really good, and it was really like a very persuasive argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it made a lot of people all of a sudden very aware of climate change. But a lot of people who were sympathetic to listening to Al Gore. And then there's a whole Republican camp that's just like, oh, you know. It, whatever, it doesn't even matter. Whatever yeah. he says. Yeah, or it's all lies because he's a do. Democrat or I don't know. I mean, it is very tribal. So it's maybe beyond, yeah, something that you can really talk about in a rational way. But it's unfortunate that it's become a polar, like a political thing 
Yeah, because it, it absolutely shouldn't be. It's, no. it's, uh, it's physics and chemistry. <laughs> yeah, and it's like ancient chemistry and physics, too. Like it's not new. No. it's yeah. uh, In the U.S., you can say it's Civil War era science because we've known the yeah. basics since the Civil War. Totally true. Here in the U.K., you can say it's Victorian era science because that's about right. Yeah. Is there a marker in Canada we could use? What's the... Well, Canada, 18. I think 1865 was Canada's birth, so go. it's as old as, it's, yeah, it predates Canada. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These, yeah. The, the basics of this science predate our country, yeah. <laughs> basically, yeah. is what you can say over there. Um, yeah, I, I guess if, if you are in his position, if you're a politician and you want to do something, then you, you just, right out of the gate, you have this tribal problem to deal with. Yeah. Um, but... If you just leave it for somebody else to do that, those folks might not be in the same positions of power to actually do something. You know, at some point, somebody who's in Congress or somebody who's in government should has to do something. You know, because yeah, yeah. no, and, know, I, I don't, and I don't, I don't really think the blame should be put on Al Gore. I no, think no, that I, it's really the, it's a shame that the system is such that if you have, you know, if you're trying to make a change, that you know, all of a sudden that topic is associated with your politics. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, and I hope it didn't sound like I was trying no, to No, no, I didn't think you were know. trying to blame Al Gore for the environmental problem no, in no. the U.S. <laughs> no, no. Uh, one thing stuck, stuck out, though, that being said, was like the uh, the credits, I don't know if you remember the credit music was this, uh, on the first, you know, Inconvenient Truth was this acoustic guitar song about how, you know, we all need to change and wake up and stuff, and I heard that and I went, uh-oh. <laughs> being very familiar with the psychology of folks who uh, lean Republican in various ways in the they, southeast, they're, like, they're not going like, to like that. No, <laughs> they're right. like some you know, some the person with an acoustic guitar going, yeah. like, let's all get right. together. Bleeding like, heart hippie. They're, they're yeah. not going to respond to that. No. <laughs> That's going to send them running the other way entirely. Yeah. Um, but there's lots of different. I mean, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio made a film about climate change, which I didn't really think was that great. But mm. um, you know, there's different people and obviously he's not a Republican either mm. but he's a young person who knows pretty much nothing about right. climate change right um, which is why he... I didn't like the film so much <laughs> oh, right. I was going to ask you what you thought was missing from it I haven't seen it but yeah I think can... like a little bit of background knowledge on his part so that he could ask intelligent questions would have been better because mm. it was a little bit like he went places and he was like oh wow so what are you doing here mm. you know it, it mm. kind of uh yeah, it didn't have the kind of um, rigor that I was hoping it would Okay, have. okay, right. Yeah. That maybe um, you felt like with a deeper well of background knowledge, he could ask follow-up questions. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then he would have got to the kind of meat of the matter, or people would have been able to say things that had more resonance, maybe. Mm, right. But, um, but I think, you know, in general, like for, for a younger generation, that's great. I mean, a lot of those kids missed... The inconvenient truth when it came out, and it wasn't something that was part of their growing up. So, um, hmm. yeah. I wonder if part of the problem was just trying to make a film, right? And like, that's necessarily usually the way those are cut together. They're trying to make it more. You can't necessarily go super in in depth unless it's just a straight up. Yeah, we're gonna do a science documentary right now. Right. Yeah. So I. Yeah. And I haven't seen it again, so I don't know why I'm commenting or asking questions about it. Well, see it and tell me what you think. Now. But yeah. I, I, you know, I mean, you've you're asking me questions because you've done some background research and you mm -hmm. have like an idea of where you want things to go. I'm yeah. not sure that 
Okay. I didn't get the sense that that's sort of how he approached his subject matter. Okay. It's kind of more like, oh, you're the expert. Tell me what I should know. Right. Okay. You know, but it's yeah. sometimes you, the experts need a little bit of curating. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'll take that as a really nice compliment. That like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should. <laughs> yeah, that I'm, I'm apparently at least doing better than... <laughs> yeah, even way better than Leonardo DiCaprio. Sweet. So, yeah. <laughs> it's on. <laughs> Do we want to finish with... Um, I don't want to take you know your entire afternoon. Uh, thank you for for being so open with your time. And, oh no, it's, I'm really pleased to be here. Oh good, yeah, I've been really glad to have you here, and thanks for being so so open. Do we want to kind of round things out with a little rapid fire round, and you know, you can kind of react to these however you want. Sure. They don't have to be earth shattering, you know, answers. Okay. You don't have to, um, you know. And I just like to ask this series of questions about something you've learned. So I like, what's something you've learned about? Science, for example, if you had some little takeaway um, that could be about the process of it or the experience of being in it. Uh, I guess I'm always surprised and kind of delighted at how little we know. That's a terrible mm. answer in a way, but it's <laughs> it's kind of neat to always, especially when you work in polar regions, you're always going somewhere that people haven't really done much research before. So th- there's sort of like these big open questions. Um, but I'm always surprised at how often we have to revise what we know or, or how, you know, for example, Greenland moves in ways that we never anticipated 10 or 15 years ago. So there's always these like really big surprises that mm-hmm. kind of fundamentally shake our knowledge of something. And I think that that's kind of interesting. It's exciting that it, that could happen again, right? That, it, yeah. that, that, that your, our whole kind of knowledge base could need to be revised, Yeah. you know, that there could be a big, a big shakeup. That being said, when you put more CO2 into the atmosphere, you do get more energy down here, and that's not changing. No, no, that's like Victorian <laughs> that era or yeah. Civil War era yeah, science. Yeah. yeah, But in terms of our understanding the time scales of those responses yeah. and the way those responses yeah, could happen, yeah. that could change. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that reminds me of um, Alex Archibald did this podcast a couple of weeks ago, and his answer was similar to that. And uh, he just said that he... Um, he learned about science kind of as a verb, as like, that was part of what surprised him, is like, oh, it's an active thing, you know, it's right. not just like a set of facts that's sitting yeah. up on a shelf somewhere, like said, it's a process. Yeah. yeah. So that could be... I feel like that's like the one thing I wish that I had taught, or been taught, or wish I could tell kids, Yeah. you know, is that like, science, the way they teach it in schools is so out of date and so much about a, a prescribed answer that you're supposed yeah. to get to through some sort of you know very rigid methodology and, yeah. and a lot of what what I do is kind of more observational or yeah. you know asking questions and then kind of trying to come up with answers and, and then coming up with more questions as you're coming up with answers and so it's yeah it's yeah. not a, a fixed thing no that's right even like in university like a lot of the introductory physics labs for example yeah. just drawing on my own experience they're fun to do, but they're prescriptive. They're super prescriptive. They're like, well, take this metal ball and drop it this many times and write down the mean and standard deviation of, yeah. your, of all the drops, and you can derive gra- the acceleration due to gravity in this way. And mm-hmm. um, I, <laughs> There was one professor at my undergrad university who would mark you down if you didn't get you know, the, the expected answer to within so many percentage. It was that you know, prescribed. Right. It was like, well, we know what the answer is, so you're just, you're just verifying. 
uh, maybe there is some value in that, but it's not very exploratory, and it's, it's it doesn't give you a sense of what science is actually like. Yeah. But even like, yeah, some of those things can be great. Like I remember in math when I was in high school, I had a great math teacher and I think it was his first year teaching math or something because he was like really super energetic and we had to have these (laughs) projects, like a math project, which is kind of like... Hadn't been worn down yet. Not yet. (laughs) It's really cynical. Um, But we had math projects we had to do and I couldn't think of of what I I could do a math Mm. project on because math was kind of about finding the right answers and... He said, well, you know, you could go out and, you know, he's giving a, me and a friend of mine sort of ideas. And he's like, well, you could go and you could take like a time lapse photo of like the North Star and the stars around it. And you could calculate the speed of the earth or something. And mm-hmm. I was like, cool. oh, wow. So we did that. And it was just like, you know, we came up with like more or less the right answer, but cool. through like a really kind of fun, weird way. And I was, it's sort of those kind of things are, yeah, a nice way of learning about Oh yeah, science or math in this case or both. <laughs> I but. like that. So it was a general. They give you a general direction, like yeah. try this sort of thing out. Yeah. But it, they didn't give you the specifics of here's yeah. exactly how and you should do it. Sort of like, how it. do you think? It was more like, how do you think you could do it? Yeah. Yeah. I like that, and that that means you've got to be creative. Yeah. Creative, but also constrained by there is a physical yeah, reality a problem. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. Yeah, and you need to take actual measurements and have some physical statements about what's going on yeah yeah i like that what's something you've learned about um academia about just being in the kind of academic thing because that could be a little different that could be different that's more broader that's broader than science yeah yeah uh i think maybe and as i go on i i mean usually you have very narrow impressions of things when you start off and so you i think one of the things, especially working at Bass, actually, I love how varied it is and how there's like so many different ways to do it and so many different templates for it. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I was in this women in science panel on students on ice, actually. And um, I think, you know, we we're talking about sort of strategies for women in science and, you know, managing your life and family and all those things. And, you know, I, I was sort of, I kept saying, like, the, for me, it seems like there's a million ways that you could do this. You know, and there's a million ways that you can structure your life or structure your family life or whatever to have it work so that it works out for you. There's not, like, a, a rigid way to do it. Mm. And so I think that's one of the nice discoveries about academia. On the other hand, I mean, I have to be so flexible that it hurts sometimes. But, um, yeah, I do. I do think that there's... Probably I haven't found like the perfect way to do it yet, but there there are lots of different ways to do it. So that's right. It's not you don't have to show up in the same building, you know, nine to five every day. Yeah. And there's not you know, you, you have freedom and flexibility in terms of how you want to get stuff done and how you want to navigate your day. Yeah. 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 That's right. I like though that you you pointed out in that reply, like you get flexibility but you have to have to give flexibility <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's right yeah <laughs> it, it goes both ways like yeah. you don't have to come in nine to five but also you might need to move every two years yeah <laughs> i don't know yeah so that's, that's, that's a trade-off what's something you learned about field work if you... uh what have i learned about field work well Well, I think it's maybe the thing that I keep coming back to, but like, I love field work. Um, but I think field work makes me and probably lots of people a better scientist. Like I think 
one of the things I actually love to do is paint when I'm in the field, like to sketch where I am or um, just like take time out to be in that place and mm-hmm. to kind of understand it. And when you work on like past environments and things, it's really important to understand or kind of imagine what the different possibilities are in a place. And mm-hmm. so it's really like a critical component is just to sit there and kind of try to figure out the landscape and try to figure out how it formed and how it changes and what the variables are and, you know, those sorts of things. And so I guess, I mean, what I know about fieldwork and what's reinforced every time is how critically important it is for really being able to do good science. Ah, I love that. That's a really good answer. And And I hadn't thought about it that way about if you're studying a specific region, that just sitting in it and drawing is a way to kind of take it in and internalize it. And that's a very lovely human thing to do, but it could also help your science too. Because when you're, you know, analyzing the data later, you've got something that you can picture. You've got something that you kind of inhabit in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I like that. That's really nice. What's well, something you learned about writing? Do you like writing? <laughs> I get, no, I like. You know. I think I'm like a classic writer, and that yeah. like I avoid it like the plague for a really long time and then once I'm in it I actually like really enjoy it and then I could write like five papers but it takes me a really long time to like get to the place like physically mentally that I really enjoy writing yeah it yeah it's almost like you're recharging some reservoir or you're like filling up some reservoir totally and then it reaches but the reservoir is also like down a path and like around the woods (laughs) and in a place you can't remember quite how to get to sometimes and you're filling it up by buckets you're like (laughs) yeah you're taking a bucket out of a lake and walking it up to the reservoir yeah it in but then when the reservoir is full you can open the floodgates and yeah i don't know how reservoirs work you open something and then water pours down yeah Um, you've talked about bits of this, bits and pieces of this throughout, but what's something you've learned about um, outreach? And you talked about the students on ice thing. That's a huge part of it. That's yeah, I mean, I think you. outreach is critical. Like, I think it yeah. should be sort of a fundamental component of how everybody thinks of their job. Mm-hmm. You know, like you write your papers and you do your research and you do outreach. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody should do it. Um, I think it's maybe the most important part is really just like connecting people with people with you as a scientist yeah you know so that people understand a little bit about science they understand about people who are scientists and then they can kind of yeah connect with what you do a little bit yeah makes your science more relevant yeah that's really good and i was just thinking about how that I'm not sure. Maybe it's your your openness that I alluded to earlier. But yeah, the, now that I've gotten a sense that you know you're you're somebody who has nurtured the ability to go like to a natural space and really take it in and, and personalize and internalize it, that um, that really enables you to be a guide to help other people do that as well to mm-hmm. invite them into that process. You know, and so you both are open in terms of you know drawing people in, but you're also familiar with like how to be in a natural space and you can bring people with you mm. yeah no, that's, that's, that's really a nice nice thing to say Dan it's uh, a nice way of thinking of it <laughs> um, yeah so I, I'm glad you get the opportunity to flex those muscles and to you know to, to build that space for yourself mm. and it, it sounds like it might almost be kind of there might be like a meditative element to it and like a, an element of Practicing just being wherever you are, you know, in that sure. moment, and trying not to get overwhelmed by 
thoughts about the past or the future and you know regrets and worries and yeah uh, yeah so and I guess for some folks I would, I would guess for you that's probably easier in natural places or can you can you also do that you know in a you know I have to, you have I had to, to teach myself do to do that in a, in a non-outdoor setting okay yeah um, that you don't have the same level of there's not just something you can plug into that's already there for you you have to like yeah teach yeah. yourself how to do it yeah so is that something you practice a bit now? Yeah. Yeah, 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 I do. What do you have to do? Uh, have, to do. <laughs> have to do is maybe the wrong way to phrase them, but I think, what can you do to, like, because I'm curious too, that's to why be I'm asking. more present and... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's lots of, like, meditation techniques mm. that are really just about kind of, like, listening to yourself or breathing or, yeah. you know, kind of bringing it back to the kind of fundamental thing. Breathing, paying attention to your breath. Yeah, um, and it works. Like it, hmm. it really works, and um, yeah, even just sort of like positive, you know, thinking positive thoughts about people or or yourself or you know, those things are really weirdly powerful. It's like a really great way to start your day. You know. Yeah, like um, I like when you're saying positive things about other people. You know, one idea I heard on a different podcast was like uh, that. I, I'm not going to frame it properly. I can't quite think of how to frame it, but it's like the, the the practice of like pick pick somebody in your head and kind of imagine them, and it could be somebody you know, it could be somebody you just passed, you know, mm-hmm. and try to imagine going like, you know, wishing them love and wishing them like yeah. I hope you're I hope you're all right. I hope you're having yeah, a good, exactly good time. Yeah, exactly. Like loving yeah. kindness or meta. It's also I think called yeah meta. Yeah, yeah. where yeah. yeah where you where you wish somebody well. And you send them good thoughts, and you send those thoughts to yourself as well, and yeah. you can even send them to random strangers or to people you're not getting along with, or yeah. things like that. And I, yeah, I think it's I think it's amazingly powerful because you can often find. I mean, I can find myself like if I stop for a moment, I can feel like oh, my shoulders are up around my ears, and mm-hmm. I'm my breathing is like kind of like I've like stopped breathing, and I'm thinking like these really like circular thoughts or whatever. And this is like a very nice way of kind of like opening it up and mm. getting back to the fundamentals of things it also makes you nicer yeah which is important <laughs> yeah that's right yeah I feel like I have a reservoir of that somewhere but it's not always easy to tap into you seem like, like a very you know. nice person oh thanks yeah <laughs> thanks thanks for, <laughs> thanks for saying that I think you know I, I get I get real stressed and I can get negative and I can get pessimistic um and in, in those times it's hard to find that reservoir of like just being okay yeah. And, but I, I like the idea, and sometimes I can get it to work, you know, where you just try to wish, wish somebody well, to wish somebody, you know, love and peace, and that that can help, that can help you tap into your own sense mm-hmm. of being okay. Yeah. And that you're extending that kindness. Yeah. And that comes back to you in some way. Yeah. 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 So it's a, it's not something I, I don't have an explicit like meditative practice and stuff, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm gonna send you a link. You know, yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I, I give, I'll give it a try. I don't, uh, I don't. You like podcasts, that. right? Yeah. Also, yeah. I do, uh, kind of maybe obsessively. So yeah, I'm listening great. to. Um, well, part of it is we don't have a dishwasher, so I just wash dishes and listen to podcasts. Is what I'm doing. Nice. You know, so that sounds great. Yeah, that sounds meditative. It, <laughs> it can be. Yeah, right. Just put put the headphones in. Yeah. And I listen to a conversation. Get you know soaked into it in some way. Yeah. Wash dishes. It. 
practically and logistically it's a pain <laughs> because you know you got to do stuff right. <laughs> in your your life but i guess maybe i should think about it that way it's like that's forced meditation <laughs> like yeah. no no you have to meditate because you got to wash dishes yeah. you got to take care of these things mm-hmm. and do clothes and stuff like that so um yeah that, and that actually does work it actually does help me stay calm and grounded and, yeah yeah um yeah feel free to to, to send me a link I don't mind there's a pair of questions I like to and I'm not trying to cut that conversation off if there's no, more you wanted to say there fine. but no. uh, there's a pair of questions I like to ask about what's something that you kind of um, dislike about your job or maybe don't love about your job and then what's something you love about it so that's kind of a, a pair of questions uh, I think what I is it Negative to start off with the negative part. No, I think that's fine. Right? Yeah. Negative then. Yeah. Positive. Right. Bring it around. <laughs> you can do that. Um, yeah, th- I think the hard part is the kind of not knowing. It's the job insecurity. Yeah. I find that really challenging. Also, mm-hmm. the pay here isn't so great either. Mm-hmm. So that adds to the sort of overall stress of it. Yeah. And I think feeling like you're not sure about your future in a job and you don't feel like you're getting paid very much is like very sort of debilitating feeling yeah it, it sure can be it can hang over your your head yeah and i think maybe for the folks who are i'm sorry to in, in, no, hope no. you don't mind me interjecting no, 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 no. but maybe for the folks who are i don't want to dismiss the the concerns that younger people have because i, I experienced those cha- some of those challenges too trying to figure out what the heck am i going to do that's also right. challenging so i yeah. don't want to be dismissive of any of those feelings but maybe when you're younger you have a bit more sense of like well I'll just try this out I'll try this out right and as you get older and maybe you know kids show up and the family shows up and you start to feel like well I'd at least like to know where I will be living you know in right. you know x number of years then again maybe stability is an illusion and maybe we're all transitioning into a gig economy where we all we all will need to be flexible to the point of Right, Um, maybe. But it'd be nice not to feel like you're the only person who's being flexible. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I can. I'm certainly very sympathetic to that. I feel. I feel some of that strain as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But then I think for the positives, I mean, what I love about the job is that I love the feeling that I sort of alluded to this earlier. I love that I always feel like I'm discovering something really new. Yeah. And. I don't have to discover something new for extended periods of time. Like there's enough changeover in the projects that I'm working on that there's always something that's like really new and interesting and questions what I know about things and maybe questions what other people know about things too. Yeah. So I think that that's that's really interesting. We uh, we get to learn constantly, you know, just yeah. all the time. Yeah. And it's not it's not the burden of like having to learn a new programming language. No, you're not like cramming months, you know? for something. You're like <laughs> genuinely interested in figuring something out. So it's, yeah. yeah like you reminded me what eutrophication is, for example. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so sometimes it's forgetting and then relearning is right. part of what. Yeah. But that's also that's fun. good too. That's fun too. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Um, yeah, I do love that about about science and about you know kind of being an academics and academia in general is that that's that's one of the big objectives is to to learn new stuff and in the process you're constantly learning new things as the practitioner you know as the scientist who's doing it yeah and uh you know it, not all of those things will be practical stuff that you can put on your cv necessarily but they broaden your knowledge base and yeah. hopefully make you a better scientist and better able to you know grapple with big complex challenges um yeah so i, I yeah 
not that you need my approval, but I'm I'm on board with that too. <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? No. It's... How are you feeling? Feeling good? Yeah, good? yeah. Yeah, me too. And, you know, I, um, I like the idea of uh, being positive and kind of sharing more of that positivity with people. That's important, right? Mm. And it's so interesting, like, we could, we could do more of that just in, in general, but then one of, the, one of the barriers to that is, you know, it, it, people's defenses can go up, right? Like, if you're just suddenly super nice and people don't know you, then people, I guess the first instinct certainly in the UK, is a bit like, okay, what's going on here? Like, yeah, right. Oh, something is you're a, bit... a weird North American who wants to talk, share your feelings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, yeah. You, you can ease people into it, though. They'll get there eventually. Yeah, I think yeah. you just wear them down, actually. <laughs> <laughs> they get to know you. I think we've both been here long enough that you sort of, people get used to you, and then they know that you're, you know, you're not, you may say things that are strange sometimes, but... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're uh, generally okay. <laughs> I hope, I hope that's true. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> yeah, people get to know that you'll say weird. That's right. That you'll say weird stuff, but that you're not. Uh, you're real. You know, you're you're real crazy. Is is not going to be. It's not not malignant. It's not. Gonna, yeah. You know, it's not going to exactly. come out. And like, yeah. 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 Okay. I got some real. There's there's some there's some weird stuff, crazy stuff, but it's not malignant. It's not going to be. You yeah. Know, I'm not going to come after you. It's not like I'm going to say weird stuff. But it's coming from, just I'm I'm fundamentally just um, tuned up in a slightly weird, unusual way for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm rambling so much. I've been rambling so much today. Have you? Yeah, I didn't you know that you were rambling. No. It, mm. Yeah. So okay. So if it felt natural for you in the conversation, yeah, it's fine. I don't know how it will come across in the recording. You know, maybe it'll just be, you know, God, this guy talks so much. It's fine. <laughs> um, but. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Bianca. And um, Thanks, Dan. Yeah, thank you. And there's also no end, like I said, so it's just, yeah. you know. Well, it's good. Yeah, no, no formal end. Um, cool. That, that was two hours. So. There you have it, my conversation with Dr. Bianca Perrin. Thanks again to Dr. Perrin for your time and for being uh, open and willing to talk for a good couple hours. You can find Dr. Perrin, her uh, British Antarctic survey page. Uh, we'll have all of the contact information that you need there. Um, you can find her on Twitter, but I don't think she uses it, like I mentioned in the intro. Um, Students on Ice, the uh, expedition organization that she works with sometimes, uh, the uh, Canadian expedition organization for uh, high school and university students from all over the world. Uh, that's at Students on Ice on Twitter, so you can find their profile there at Students on Ice. Uh, the podcast is at Climate SciPod. Please do feel free to send feedback that way and to subscribe for updates there. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean, and uh, I, you know, often will just retweet the podcast stuff, and I also talk about uh, my own science stuff there. Uh, so thanks again to Dr. Perrin. That was a, a really good, ep- really good episode, a really good conversation, and uh, we will uh, talk to you in two weeks. We're still on a two-weekly schedule, uh, so for the foreseeable future. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye bye. Bye. Yeah. Just bye. <laughs>